Let me have you turn again to Romans chapter 4. While you're turning there, I I want to uh, say something to you, perhaps remind you of something I've said before, but uh, just just tell you uh, something about preaching and the nature of preaching. Preaching uh, really is a conversation. It's one side of a conversation. Uh, Part of the reason that we end up stuck, if you will, in some verses like these verses, Romans 4, 16 to 25, is because of conversations that I have with you. That's the other part of the conversation. Now, preaching isn't just showing up on a Sunday morning and unloading a bunch of information and sort of leaving you to figure out what to do with it. Preaching is a conversation. Uh, I learned this from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is really, in many respects, um, my model, my hero as a preacher. Um, There are others from whom I could have learned the same lesson. He learned, and I have learned as well, from the Puritans, to whom I'll make reference probably a little later. Uh, This isn't just about information being dumped on a group of people. This is about a pastor seeking to deal as thoroughly as he can with the text of Scripture and with his people and their questions and their doubts and their uncertainties and their objections, even their objections. David Dixon was a Puritan pastor in 17th century England, and he said, you know, the preacher has to be a student of two books. He has to be a student of the book of Holy Scripture, and he has to be the student of the book of the human heart. You have to study both. And so part of the reason we end up stuck in particular passages is because questions emerge. And what we're doing as we look at Romans chapter 4, verses 16 to 25, we're looking at Abram, who is a model for us of, of the life of faith. The life of faith, not just, as we've said, justification by faith alone. He's not just a model for that. We certainly believe Uh, as Paul clearly did, that he was a model of that. But we've been looking at Abram's life because he is a model for the living of the Christian life, if you will. That sounds perhaps a bit anachronistic to speak of him as a model of the Christian life. And yet we understand that on both sides of the cross, we're trusting the same promise. Abram entrusted himself to the promise and to the God of the promise. He was trusting in Christ from the other side of the cross as we trust in Christ from this side of the cross. And so he becomes a model for us of what it looks like to live the life of faith. And so what we've been doing is asking these questions. We're making these observations that as we look at Abram, what we, what we wrestle with is in the first place the nature of faith. What is faith? What is it? And we've said that faith is entrusting myself to God himself, to God and his promise, and to God himself. It is trusting the promise of God, and it is trusting the person of God. That's what faith is. And then we looked last week at the fact that faith grows, that faith is something that grows. It's 
It's something that has to be exercised if it is to grow. And so we struggled last week to try to come to terms with how it is that faith grows, acknowledging that it grows. And what I suggested to you is that faith grows by faithing. (laughs) Belief grows by believing. Faith doesn't grow by taking a pill. In fact, faith doesn't grow by stuffing your head full of notions. My problem in the Christian faith is that I'm already guilty of knowing way more than I'm practicing. There's a sense in which I don't need to know more. I need to practice what it is I already know. Faith comes by faithing. Belief comes by believing. And we want to look then thirdly at the outcome of faith. But frankly, we've got to, we've got to stop for just a minute. Having looked at what faith is, having looked at the fact that faith does grow, that faith has to be exercised, it certainly requires nutrients. You remember from last week, muscles need nutrients. But muscles that aren't exercised don't grow. So you need the nutrients of the truth of God, but your faith is only going to grow as faith is exercised. And God, who moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform, has this penchant for putting us in places where faith has to be exercised. And those are difficult places. So, We know something, I trust, about what faith is, what is the nature of faith, and we've looked at the fact that faith does grow. But here today, I I just feel constrained to wrestle with this matter, what faith isn't. What faith isn't. And I've got several things here that I want to... uh, uh, I want to mention to you and suggest to you as things that faith is not. And again, I mention these to you because these are things which have come out of conversations that I've had with people. So you see, I'm trying to practice what my Puritan forebears have taught me, that preaching is one side of a conversation and you have to listen to the other side of the conversation and then you have to seek by the grace of God to deal with doubts and fears and misunderstandings and objections. And let me just say before I get into this stuff that I come to you not as an expert. I don't come to you as an expert. I come to you as a person who is called to do a particular thing, but who is in the midst of this mess with you seeking better to understand what it looks like, feels like, is like to live the life of faith, to walk the life of faith. Okay? So I don't come to you with these observations, and I have five of them. I don't come to you with these observations as somebody who has risen above these things but as one who is in the midst of the struggle with you, simply called differently to speak about these things. So what is faith? Well, faith is entrusting myself to God and his word. Faith is trusting the promise of God and the person of God. What is faith not? Or what isn't faith? Well, in the first place, faith is not Optimism. Optimism 
is not faith. Faith is not this sanguine, blue sky view of the world. I've heard people say, I I have friends who say it, and I've said it myself, I'm sure, at some point, everything will work out. Everything will work out. Well, what do I expect? What do I mean? What am I thinking when I say everything will work out? How do I know that everything will work out? Again, we're thinking about Romans chapter 4. Glenn is just pointing to me and telling me that I forgot to read the scripture passage. (laughs) He's a good elder. (laughs) See? So caught up in this stuff, I forgot to read the passage. So thank you, Glenn. Let's read it, shall we? Then I'll pray and maybe God will help me. Sometimes things are bumpy. I mean, you know, it's just the way life is. Romans 4, verse 16. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We clearly need it. Come to our help. Come to our aid. As we wrestle again with your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what is faith not? Again, faith is not optimism. Faith is not just being sanguine. I know people, you know people, who never saw a day they didn't like. They woke up in the morning and they were happy to be alive. And they just have this view of the world that everything is going to work out wonderfully well. I've known people, am one I suppose, who are at the other end of that spectrum. They're not sanguine and optimistic. They're more melancholy and pessimistic. I have a friend, good friend, who has a little etching hanging in her kitchen. It says, I'd be a pessimist, but it probably wouldn't work. 
No. We know people who are optimistic and we know people who are pessimistic. And these things really and truly can be more functions of temperament than of faith. And we shouldn't confuse those things. We shouldn't confuse temperament with sanguinity, optimism. Every true Christian, from a theological perspective, from the standpoint of the Bible, has every reason to be sanguine, every reason to be cheerful, from a theological perspective. But some of us temperamentally struggle against melancholy, struggle against discouragement. And that is not an indication of spirituality. In fact, I would suggest to you that the person who temperamentally is more prone to being melancholy and depressed and who gets out of bed every morning and fights the good fight probably has greater faith than the person who is sanguine, who loves getting out of bed every morning. Right? So faith is not optimistic, by the way, or is not optimism. Faith is optimistic, but faith is not synonymous with optimism. And I should say, just sort of parenthetically, that every non-Christian, irrespective of temperament, has every reason from a theological standpoint to be depressed. To be depressed. Some of the happiest people I've ever known have no reason to be happy. So we don't want to confuse faith with optimism. Here's the second thing. And this one is really tricky. Faith is not faith in self. Faith is not faith in self. Some of you may know who Gail Devers is. She's a three-time gold medal winner, won several more gold medals in other international competitions. She overcame a debilitating illness called Graves' disease. In no way, in no way do I want to minimize or diminish hard work, dedication, and the fruit that can be born from hard work and dedication. But I want to read a quotation from Gail Devers, which is deeply troubling in view of what the scriptures teach about the life of faith. Quote, keep your dreams alive and understand to achieve anything requires faith and belief in yourself. Vision, hard work, determination, and dedication. Remember, all things are possible for those who believe. Now, folks, this one, it, a book that I read recently and actually taught through with some folks at the, at the Women's Refuge, uh, was a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. And in that book, Ed Welch uses the metaphor of smog and how if you live in a city like Los Angeles where smog is a problem, when you're in the city, you can still see the sun and you can still see the sky, which is still blue. But if you get outside the city and look down on the city, you can see the smog. You can't see it from in the midst of it. 
but it distorts and affects everything, and you don't recognize it until you're outside the smog. Folks, this one is a part of the smog of our culture. Hard work, determination, faith in self will make all things possible. It's subtle. It's extremely dangerous. The key to success, however you define it, is within me. The key to success, however you define it, is within me. Faith in self. Folks, subtly, I think it's reflected in bumper stickers. Bear with me. My child is an honor roll student at such and such middle school. Look, I'm all for encouraging folks. See, it's subtle. I'm all for applauding successes. But in a culture like ours, where self is at the center of the universe, Bumper stickers can betray worldviews, how people think about life, how they think about how the world operates. Worldviews which can be profoundly dangerous and destructive. I wonder about the bumper sticker that says, proud parents of a great kid. It makes me wonder if all of the pressure to be recognized as an honor roll student hasn't caught up with the kids who aren't honor roll students, and so the parents of non-honor roll students have to have a bumper sticker that says, my kid's okay too, proud parent of a great kid. Of course, then I wonder about this view of success and reality, the bumper sticker that says, My kid beat up your honor roll student on the playground. See, what's going on here? What's going on here? Faith is not faith in self. In fact, as I look at the scriptures, if I'm going to take the scriptures seriously, the Bible teaches me that self is the problem. That self is the problem that the whole trajectory of salvation, the whole direction of salvation is away from reliance upon self, trusting self in a culture that continues to make worse the problems we encounter because of a preoccupation with self. The whole aim of the Christian life is to get me to trust self less and God more. Isn't that what we see in Abraham? Read through his life again. Read through his life. At point after point after point after point, Abram seems inclined to take things into his own hands, to create his own scenarios for life. And every time he does... Every time he does, it creates trouble. 
What we see in the life of Abraham is through those long, long decades of walking with God, what God is doing in Abram's life is weaning him from his attachment to himself and reattaching him more and more and more to God. You see it in Paul's life as well. Paul is a powerful example of this. Read carefully 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12. Read, read them carefully. Read them as being autobiographical as Paul writes to people who are very proud, spiritually proud, proud of the gifts that God has given them, proud of the exercise of those gifts, proud of their identification with Apollos or with Paul or with Peter or with Christ. Little cult groups that have heroes whom they worship. Read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 as Paul himself lists all of the reasons that he has for boasting. And then as you get to chapter 12, all of those reasons for boasting culminate in this, that he had visions, that he was taken up to the third heaven, that he was given special revelations by the Lord himself. And listen to what Paul says as he reflects upon all of these ways in which he himself could be differentiated and distinguished from everybody else. Listen to what he says. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see what God's doing in Paul's life? What he's done in Abram's life? He wounds Paul. He breaks Paul. And he persists in wounding and breaking Paul so that Paul, who is overwhelmingly gifted, overwhelmingly blessed, would not come to trust himself, but rather would trust God. For a long time, I struggled with that passage For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And here's what I thought it meant. Here's what I thought it was teaching. I thought the way it works is this. I'm weak. God is strong. God will work in my weakness so that I will become strong. No. No. God takes the strong and makes them weak. And makes them weaker still. And makes them still more weak. So that in the midst of their utter weakness. His strength 
and power may be made manifest so there is no confusion at all about where strength is to be found. It's interesting. It's interesting to me how different our language is. And again, folks, I'm a fellow struggler here. I'm a fellow struggler. It's interesting to me how different our language is from the language of the scriptures. We talk about Christ being in me. So does the Bible. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul in Galatians chapter 2 says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. But do you know that over 150 times in the New Testament, The language is not Christ in me, but me in Christ. Me in him. Me in the Lord. Me in the beloved. It isn't that Jesus moves into my environment. It is that Jesus moves me into his environment. And everything begins to change. Everything begins to change. Faith is not faith in self. In fact, the trajectory of the Christian life is away from self and in the direction of the God who is there and the Savior whom he has given to deliver me from myself. Third, here's the third thing quickly. Faith is not trusting in truth. And this one's tricky. Faith is not trusting in truth. Here's what I mean. There is a truth content to the Christian life. There is no question about it. There is a truth content to the Christian life. But I do not trust the truth. I trust a person. The truth leads me to the person. The truth teaches me about the person. I am not saved by truth. I am not saved by a system I am saved by a person. And the remarkable thing about this person who has saved me is that he is saving people who have completely, wildly divergent views of my understanding of the truth. (laughs) Am I responsible to study? Am I responsible to grow? Am I responsible to come to terms with the scriptures and the system that is in the scriptures? Yes, I am. The system doesn't save me. My study doesn't save me. Let me put it to you this way. This will be a little esoteric for some of you, but that's okay. It'll provoke some reflection and some thought. Let me put it to you this way. Thinking about justification by faith alone. I am not justified on the basis of a right understanding of justification by faith alone. I am justified by Christ who loved me and who gave himself for me. A salvation imperfectly understood and imperfectly apprehended by an imperfect faith. It is a person who saves me. 
Never be confused about that. And here's another, here's a fourth thing. And this one is tough. Faith is not faith in an outcome. Faith is not faith in an outcome. I must learn that I trust God for who he is, not for what he does for me. I must learn that I trust God for who he is, not for what I expect him to do. Now, there is an outcome to the faith, and we're going to look at it next week. And it is an immeasurably, infinitely more glorious outcome than any outcome you could possibly attach your heart to in this world. But I must tell you that through the years, in 32 years of ministry, I've met far too many folk who have become bitter And I want to suggest to you that they have become bitter and their faith has been shattered because they trusted God for what they expected him to do, not simply entrusting themselves to God for who he is. There's a whole lot to think about and reflect upon here. And I want to give you a passage to reflect on and to think about. And it's the story of Daniel, not Daniel so much, but Daniel's three friends. And you can find it in Daniel chapter 3. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My shack, your shack, and a bungalow for those who need a shorthand. And you know the story, these friends of Daniel, these three friends of Daniel refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's God. They refused. They were very public young men. They had been handpicked, handpicked by Nebuchadnezzar and those advisors around him, handpicked from all of these Jewish young men who were in Babylon. They had gone to the university of Babylon. They were trained in Babylonian schools and they rose to the top of their class. They were very public. They did everything that they were asked to do except this one thing. They refused to bow before Nebuchadnezzar and worship him as God. And so they were arrested. And they were brought before the king, and the king was furious. See, when, when people want to be God, they don't like it when others refuse to worship them. And these three young men refused to worship. And the king said to them, if you don't fall down and worship me, I will throw you into the burning furnace. I will kill you. I will kill you. And this is their response. 
Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will spare our lives, O king. He will preserve us. You are not God. He is God. He is able to preserve us. And then they say this. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I want you to live with that passage. And I want you to understand these are real young men living at a real place in real time whose lives are being threatened. It reminds me of a story told of a Ugandan pastor who was arrested by Idi Amin's henchman, a lieutenant, and three of his privates came to this pastor's home. They put four rifles at his head and they said, renounce Christ or we will kill you. And he says that from somewhere deep inside him, he heard this voice say, you cannot kill me. I am already a dead man. I have died in Christ and I live in him. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had had those words, they would have spoken out those words. Go ahead and kill us. You can't kill us because we are safe and secure in the embrace of God himself. You see what they did? They had entrusted themselves to God, not to an outcome. Kill us, don't kill us, makes no difference. We have entrusted ourselves to the God who is really there. Faith is not faith in an outcome, my dear friends. And I encourage you, plead with you, admonish you and myself that when faith gets attached to outcomes, we can set ourselves up for grave disappointments and even bitterness. We entrust ourselves to the God who is there. And then one last observation. This is the fifth. Faith is not faith in an experience. Faith is not faith in an experience. How many times have you said? How many times have I said? If only I could see Jesus. If only I could have walked with Jesus. It would be different. My faith would be so strong. Well, folks, here's... Here's another passage. It is a passage from Peter's second letter. Peter who did see Jesus. Peter who did walk with Jesus. Peter who was with Jesus for three years and saw all of the miracles that he performed. Peter who was with Jesus on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured, who heard the voice of Almighty God from heaven. Peter, who not many weeks later betrayed Jesus having seen all of that. 
Here is Peter reflecting on all of it, and he says this. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then verse 19, Peter says, We have something more sure, the prophetic word. The prophetic word. Now, you've got to be stunned by that, folks. Because what Peter saw was the fulfillment of everything that the prophetic word promised. He saw it. He heard it. He handled it, held it, embraced it. And yet he says... That experience of having seen and heard and handled the fulfillment of everything that's contained in the prophetic word, that experience is not better than the word itself. It's not better than the word itself. The prophetic word, the word of God, is better, he says. That's verse 19. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So easy to think that if only I could have this experience or that experience, if only I could see Jesus, if only I could walk, if only I could hear his voice. But what Peter is saying is, no, there is a better thing and it is the prophetic word. It is the word of God now for us, not just the Old Testament word, but now the New Testament word as well. That is what we are called to entrust ourselves to, folks. We are called to entrust ourselves to the promise of God and the person of God. Exercising faith, trusting in him, always remembering, and and this is a whole sermon, but I'll stop just with this encouragement, with this reminder, always remembering that the best evidence you will ever have that God is worthy of your trust is the cross, is the cross. The cross prophesied in the old, the cross described and explained in the new. That is the best reason, the best evidence that I may have for entrusting myself to this promise, to this word, and to the God who has spoken this word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us. Keep us from misunderstanding what it really does look like to entrust ourselves to you. And I pray for myself and for each of us here that you'd give us grace more and more to know this promise, to know its fulfillment, to know this word, and to entrust ourselves to it 
And by entrusting ourselves to it, we entrust ourselves to you. You are worthy of our trust, Heavenly Father. Give us grace to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand.